Bigger Than the Both of Us, a podcast hosted by David Hobson and Brian Ankervis that celebrates and explores the nuts and bolts of creative activities through the lives of those who create. Boy, whose voice was that? That is the voice of Tyler Coppin. And Tyler Coppin is someone I knew about before I actually met him. I knew that he was a very good friend of Paul Hester's, Mm -hmm. Paul being... The the, Crowded House drummer. That's correct, Mm -hmm. the late, great Paul Hester. I also knew that he was a friend of Mark Little, Mm -hmm. one of our great comedians. I knew they'd done a show together. He was in Neighbours, wasn't he? Correct. Mm. He was in Neighbours. And I'd never met him... And then finally, I got to know Paul and became very good friends with Paul. But tragically, the first time I met Tyler was at Paul's memorial service. Mm, So, yeah. So I've always been interested in him. I don't know what it is. It's just something about him. Well, he's a fascinating performer. He's always been edgy, whether it be as a character actor or he's always even dallied with a bit of punk in a funny way. But he's a really interesting guy. Look, he was in Mad Max. Mm. He was in the Baz Luhrmann's original production. Strictly Ballroom. Strictly Ballroom. Yeah, helped create that one of the... Yeah. So he's really been around the block. Mm. A couple of months ago, I needed someone to recite the opening lines of The Catcher in the Rye mm-hmm. by J.D. Salinger. And I thought, who could do it? Woke up in the middle of the night and thought, Tyler Coppin. Fantastic. And how did he sound? Incredible. If you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me and all that David Copperfield kind of crap. But I don't feel like going into it, if you want to know the truth. And you work with him? Yeah, well, I I, I had the good fortune to see him at close hand at the opera company when he came to do the Benjamin Britten Midsummer Night's Dream for Baz Luhrmann. Where he was fantastic as Puck, just like this energetic, acrobatic madman, like an MC yes. ruling the roost in that. But then I had also the the uh, added fortune of doing Chitty Chitty Bang Bang with him, the Australian premiere where he played the child catcher. And he was incredible at that as well. And interestingly, which you pointed out to me earlier, um, he did Robert Helpman. Yes. The Robert Helpman one-man show that he created called The Liarbird which was a huge success here and overseas. Who played the child catcher in the original movie of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Sir Robert Helpman. Correct. So anyway, he, there's more to Tyler than that. Oh, yeah. You know, now he's a great coach and accent coach. Let's, let's have a listen. Let's meet him. Stickability, as my mom used to say. Yeah. She'd go, Tyler, you've got stickability. And I went, yeah, that's true. It's stickability. We stick at things even though you, you know, it's not always great, but your yeah. little career or passion or hobby, yeah. you just, for some reason, you stick with that. It never leaves you. Do you reckon she taught you stickability? Yeah, really? I think so. I probably picked it up without even yeah. thinking about it too much. Gorgeous. She's amazing. Always had an expression for everything in American, you know. Oh, really? Yeah, I wish I, I should have, I should sit down and write them. I'd go to my parents' house and move back in with them and lick my wounds, and you know, she'd come in and she said, um, she'd have an expression. God, my God, your face is so long I could walk on it. And um, <laughs> what else did she say? She'd say, That's um, great. you 
better kick those blues before they kick you in the pants. Which kind of made no sense, but it was just, anyway, it was... And is that accent a Sacramento, Californian accent? Yeah, pretty much um, Sacramento, California. But it it almost, to my ears, to my untrained Australian ears, it almost sounds as if it's coming from the hills. That that goes all the way through America. You find pockets of that. You know, I coach, I coach actors all the time in their screen tests, of which they're going for young actors are going screen tests for American stuff all the time, and Australian stuff all the time. Just constantly, it's my day. And like yes, Heath Ledger, who, who you worked I with. I worked with Heath when he was like 17. I taught, I, I can't say that I taught him an American no, accent. He came, for the, he came for the good housekeeping seal of approval, yeah. saying, how's my accent? I'm going to America. And how was it? And I went, boom, your accent's fantastic. That'll be all of $20. And we worked for about 45 minutes, and he was the nicest kid was without he? shoes on, a lovely man, and his accent was great. Yeah. It was committed and focused, and he was great. Could you put a figure on how many different American accents you've taught? I can do other accents as an actor. You know, study them and do them and yeah. you know, put them on stage. But I've just decided that I will only do general American accent. When the agent says, look, can you speak in an American accent? And the Australian actor says, which one? And they go, no, just an American accent. That's a regionally specific called general American accent. So if you, for instance, I was watching an episode of Succession last night. I'm trying to get onto that. Get onto that, yeah. So someone like Sarah Snook, Ah, the, yes, wonderful. The Adelaide actress. What know. accent is she employing then? For general American accent. General but I haven't American? seen Succession, so maybe oh, okay. she's going regional. Like like um, Mar- the wonderful Margot Robbie, was it Tanya Harding and I, Tanya? Yes. yes. And she had put on a really nice regional. She had the regional quality of, of Portland, Oregon. Can you give us an example? Well, you know, it just it's it's the follow through of the expression. It's sort of a bit like my mom, mm-hmm. you know, where everything's a little bit held on. You know, and it's it's really more of a spirit and the emotional connection to the vowels, you know, the the quality of not listening to your accent. That's the big thing that we as Australians wanting to do American accents, we try to get it perfect. But Americans have a, a step above us, yeah. which is we're not thinking about our accents, are we? So if there was a phrase that you, you might use, and if I threw a few different regions at you... Okay, if you're talking to me as an actor, Betty bought a bit of better butter, which is Betty bought a bit of better butter. That's pretty general American. If I was doing New York, you know, as an actor, I'd be, let's see, I'd have to research that. i go, Betty bought a bit of better butter. Is that American? Brooklyn? Betty bought a bit of better butter. You know, as an actor, I'm launching into that, but I just concentrate yeah. on actors going Betty bought a bit of better butter we have soft T's that turn into D's Betty bought no forward vowel there not bought bought we don't use our lips so much put your fingers up to your lips say Betty bought Betty bought Betty bought if you feel your lips coming forward bought you're Australian bought so it's we do use our lips American but we don't use them as much wow and the placement of the accent american accent sits deep and at the back of the throat 
and an open channel because we're all, always employing the rhotic R. We're always saying the middle R's, end R's, beginning R's. We're saying like, what, what three times as many R's as, <laughs> as you people? <laughs> so it's opening up the throat because the tongue is always kind of going back to yeah. that rhotic. What does that say about the American ethos? The American accent is imbued with confidence in, um, in communication. I always say, I have these little mantras, our voices, our voices are back, but our thoughts are forward. We keep our thoughts forward, our communication clear, but our voices and sound focus back. It's easy to, as an actor, lose yourself in human behavior and just so that the focus of your self-focus becomes about in your performance becomes about being that being the character you know the insanity of, of actually thinking you're the character and sort of almost retreating into naturalism and what that can do is kind of implode a performance a little bit where i say well like ultimately though we have to remember that if the story wasn't there and the script wasn't there we wouldn't be there so you have to remember that we are part of a greater story and that brings us out so a more confident sound in exchange and yeah. communication but also americans they have got a, a confidence but also yeah. an enthusiasm yeah and a lust for life incredible and and this incredible embrace which yeah. doesn't always have good outcomes no. <laughs> as we've seen mm. but do you miss that i do i do very much miss that um it's more like an avert pa passion you mean yeah mm. oh yeah. Where, whereas hilarity. we can tend to retreat yeah first time mm. i went to america within two days i went to see a film that i'd seen in australia it was lacage au fall mm -hmm. which i liked and i remember the australian audience the melbourne audience liked but seeing it in a San Francisco picture theatre, no. the well, joint well, went San Francisco mad. in the Castro. Yeah, <laughs> so like brilliant, perfect time, but, absolutely. But the enthusiasm and yeah. the laughter and the cheering, gee, it was great. Yeah, incredible. That I do, I do miss that. I took, um, I had a show, a solo show that I, I, I played all around and in Australia, and, and then my brother. This is the liarbird you're yeah, talking go about. Yeah, li liarbird. It was about Robert Helpman, but it's mm -hmm. another story. But but I, I, we took it to Sacramento, and um, in Australia and in, in England, it was it was a little hard to get generate. Um, well, not interest. People were interested, but it was like, why would we want to show see a show about? Robert Helpman, why would we want to see a show about that? You know, tell us about who is he, what is again, you know, oh yeah, we know him, but he's but a major what's the figure. Major, but, yes. but but it was always hitting a brick wall, especially with, you know, young starting out journos and that. It's like, yeah. okay, tell us a little bit, uh, why? In America, I said, my brother's going to produce this in America. I'm going to take it there to my home city of Sacramento and we're going to do it. And, and it was, they don't know anything about. Helpman, why would you do a thing about an Australian? Well, it's about a man in love with the theater. It's basically, that's what we're looking at. Got it to America. And the journos and local people came, like, researched, wanted to embrace it, 
you know, we, this is great. You know, they, they were fully on board. American audiences want to learn about things. They want to embrace, as you say. They want yeah. to grab onto it. So I found just the opposite. I was going there thinking no one's going to like the show. And in fact, it was like they just love the show. Is it apocryphal or is it true that you created an Australian accent to get into NIDA, which is obviously the great national acting school in Australia? Um, that's half right. Um, I didn't create it to get in, but what happened was I I came here when I was 19 and wanted always wanted to be an actor, and then I saw that I could go to NIDA. I was in the situation where I could go to NIDA. I uh, saw it in the paper, didn't know anything about it, and I auditioned for it and got in. And I was with, uh, with my strong American accent, which I believe I have right now when I'm talking to you. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, and I had it then even thicker. And so I woke up one morning and decided in my second year of NIDA, that's it. I'm going to 24-7 stroke 365. From now on, I am going to be an Australian <laughs> Not an awkward Australian, not yeah, good eye, my eye, my eye. not that kind, but yeah. I will I want to be twenty four seven of my life someone where I walk into a shop or talk to people they do not know that I'm American, that I'm just fit in because then that will open me up. And so I had a friend of mine who I was sharing a house with who was in my year at NIDA, Barbara Jane Cole, and she I said, uh, she said, I'll help you. And I remember we went out it was in the evening, actually. Went out and to a, a restaurant, and she was sitting there, and she said, okay, we're starting now. And she pointed, and she said, what's that across the street? And I said, uh, a church. And she went, nah. <laughs> church. Church. And I went, church. <laughs> and then I compared it to my own. Church. Church. And I felt, you know, the focus of what was happening. That was my first word. But then from then on, it was like we used to travel to night at, in the morning and home at night together. And, and she just pointed everything. What's that? Milk bar. Milk bar. <laughs> Milk bar. Milk bar. Oh, okay. Milk bar. You know, and from then on, it got into conversation. And then my other fellows at NIDA, yeah. I became, you know, kind of a you know the fun bag that yeah. we you know poke at and say yeah. what's that <laughs> mate what's that and i'd have to do it and i got through them to i changed 24 7 eventually my because it, what happened was i had to in second year at um, one of the plays that we were doing in second year when it when it happened i had the opening line of a bertolt brecht play good person of such one i had to come out and say and i said this in my american accent i am wong the water seller and I, they all laughed, you know, and they went, and that's when she said, um, yeah. what are you going to do about your accent? And I went from, I am Wong the water seller, ultimately, in a short space of time, to I am Wong the water seller, yeah. which is quite a difference, yeah. water seller to water seller. Anyway, so I invented myself as an American, took a long time and did it, and I'd visit home in America, I'd go back and see my family. Um, you know, I did this for like three, four, five years and no one knew I was American. They thought maybe I'd been there on holiday, but even that I got, got rid of the little tiny nuances and became an Australian sounding, a person that blended in basically. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it, I had to hate my own accent, to push it out in order to yeah. fully 
invest in this. But 24-7, I became an Australian wow. inventor. And then slowly it slipped back for a number of reasons. I got parts as an American because I went, oh, I can, I can be up for that one because I really am an American. And I went for one, One Night Stand, this m movie. Yeah. I went for this One Night Stand movie. And um, the, one of the leading roles in that with... Uh, Saskia Post, a lovely Saskia Post and people and um, American Sailor I went for and I auditioned for it, went in the room, auditioned for it, they put it on videotape, they called, my agent called and they said, they really like you for this role, you're perfect for the role, but they don't like your American accent. And it was off because I'd concentrated for years so much on getting rid of it. Yes. So I had to re-audition and I learned, taught myself, had to commit to it fully and I went and I got the role and, and did it, but funny things like you know and then from then on it started sliding into the american accent and coaching actors and and now it's just become american again yeah. because that's more or less what i do so i went from american to australian to american had you done some acting like before you went to nida i'm intrigued you, you came to melbourne with your parents mm -hmm. you were working in a brick factory Pottery factory. A pottery factory. Walker Ceramics. In one Turner, mm -hmm. making clay mm -hmm. for one of our great figures, William Ricketts. That's right. He'd come in and pick up clay, and I'd have to... They taught me how to work with the... For, use, drive the forklift, and I'd get the clay off for Mr. Ricketts and put it in his... In the back of his truck or whatever. I can't remember, but yeah, I met Ricketts Interesting a few Interesting guy? Uh, quiet, lovely... Yeah, so, but from then I auditioned yeah. and then I went up to sit, got in and went to Sydney. But I'd always wanted to be an actor. I was an actor, well, just in regional theater and school theater. Right. For in years. America. Yeah. Yeah, in America, in Sacramento, California. How, what did you do and what sort of roles and what drew you to it and how old were you? Um, you... I was 10. I just, my mom, you know, just found a summer class in acting for, you know, I was about 10. I, you know, do this up at the community center with other kids. And I just remember, I still remember vividly, they had put a chair out in front of the group in our first day. And, and they just went that simple exercise. Okay, it's getting really hot in here. It's getting hot. You're sweating. You're sweating. You're sweating. Now it's really hot. Now what's happening? It's, you're exhausted. It's so hot. And now it's getting colder and you feel a breeze. And I just had to go with that. And I just remember, I'm sold. Before that moment, did you express an interest? So what was it, the fact that your no. mum took you to that? Well, I liked Halloween. And I think there's something in Halloween. <laughs> okay. I really do think that, I think there's a lot to be said for Halloween and an actor. When you, I've thought of this many times, and this may be a bit shaky, but yeah. I'm going to go there anyway. You think about it as an actor, what I do, like what we do as actors, we go, we dress up, we get rewarded, we get money. <laughs> so you put on your costume in Halloween, you invent it, you become the character, the point of where you really think you're that character, you go to get a reaction, you knock on the door, there's your audience, you get it, and they reward you with candy. Now that leads to acting. Brilliant. And that's what I felt. That's like a theory. Mind. That's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. Because Is I the candy applause? Sometimes, or well, do you actually need the monetary exchange? No, you know the applause is the the applause is the reaction. I've never really, I've never really got off on applause as such, but I get off on the reaction that I can see and feel mm -hmm. during yes what I do. The applause is wonderful. That's like yeah. you know, gorgeous. When but, that whole room is yeah. explodes with applause, it's a pretty I, good incredible. Feeling. Yeah, but, but that's not what you're actually no, looking for. No, well, mine was about, again, it's the Halloween. Mine was that feeling and seeing someone get a shock, you know, when you feel like you've given them a shock, like grotesque and 
you know, I like that kind of stuff to make people go, oh, that's not quite right. Where you just screwing with them you yeah. know you're giving the audience a, a, oh, a thrill ride it's child catcher from chitty chitty bang wow, bang wow i was about to say bang. something like the child catcher from chitty chitty bang bang i mean and i was amazed because i was lucky enough to be in that show with you and observe you and observe how the character emerged each rehearsal and the nuance that you would place onto that character whether it be a a movement of a finger or an eyebrow or an expression in the voice the way you just kept on adding and layering and hmm. i found that absolutely mesmerizing and yeah. it really was watching an actor at his craft at his best and also yeah it's fun what well it would have been fun for you oh. it was fun for us it's just as well but just you also joy. you really you seem to me also the type of actor that you, you spend a lot of time creating and nuancing yeah detailing and, and the detail is very important to I you. love the de- the detail is extraordinary I just just love the is it the minutia of, yeah minutia you know, of the details just, yes well you can always retreat you can always go out as you say in a bit of a freedom to you know to be in spontaneity but you can always then go back to where you were moments later so you always have the I always feel like I have that to fall back so you on. Were it's finding, almost like balletic in a way. Yes. That's could, what I love. Body movement is but it, incredible. You could be finding different things each performance. Yeah. They just, yes. And they, then using them the next night or discarding them if they didn't yes, perhaps yes, serve the character. Yes, exactly. With Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, let's yeah. not lose that because you were both in that performance. Yeah. And I'm connected to because I was in the theatre one night and I stood and applauded at the end and you it was it was a remarkable show mm. how much freedom were you given tyler with that character and was there did you watch the film because that was a pretty remarkable performance well thank you and the answer is that i was given roger hodgman gave me a, a lot of freedom um uh i had done a i'd written my show my solo show which is i guess one of my life's things you know to create a, sh- a show where i'm on stage write it and perform it about robert helpman who played the child catcher and yeah. chitty chitty bang bang so when i got the opportunity to audition i know that roger told me the director said you know well of course we're going to see you because you played yes. robert helpman and you studied him and i studied him for that work really thoroughly and i did a bit of the child catcher quite a lot in my solo show so it kind of matched up Perfect. that I would ultimately play the role oh, it was perfect. properly. So it was fun to have that completion yeah. to sort of do it, that helpman. I'll never forget the... We did it many times, didn't we? Hundreds of times. And But I remember this one matinee in the front row when I was singing my child catcher song, Looking for the Kids, you know. Come on, kitties, you know. Come on, little kitty witty winkies, you know, all that stuff. And... And looking down in the front row and seeing this little girl of seven or eight, she was all dressed up for the theater with her parents, and she was enthralled and enjoying it, but she had her program up to her eyes and would just occasionally drop it down to, <laughs> to peek at me and then back up it would go. If I, if I went looked anywhere in that direction, back up it would go again to shield herself from me. And it was like I was going... I, you know, I hope I haven't sort of r- ruined, ruined the theatre for her. But, yes. but I know that she was just like, couldn't take her eyes off the whole show. She was just enthralled. And... By each light of midnight.
and shrill light of day. The hunter is after his prey. If you're hiding children and I sniff them out, oh my, what a price you will pay. Who are the pals at NIDA? People we might know. Uh, do you know Philip Quast? Of course, oh, yes. very well. Philip Quast was there. Uh, you know what? Um, uh, James Laurie and Warren Coleman, Genevieve Pico. Yeah. Uh, Ann Tenney, country practice. Yes. Well known for country practice. Um, many others. I do remember the, the first... See, now I'm starting to go into my Australian accent a little bit because I'm thinking of NIDA. Because you're a NIDA. Um, NIDA, mate. My accent, it's really messed up. It just goes from American <laughs> back and it depends, That's the, whatever. Right. But when I was at NIDA in the first week, they said, oh, first years, go. Oh, and I got there on the back, of the, went there on the back of the double-decker bus from Central, went, like my second day, I remember. And on the back of the bus was Steve Bisley and Mel Gibson smoking cigarettes. And they befriended me like the young little American first year. So that was quite fun being on the bus with them a few times. Um, did they have a vibe about oh, them? They would just like own the bus. They were larri- <laughs> larrikin incarnate. There were two larrikins that were just. What you was know, Mel's 20. accent then? Oh, he's kind of a American, but mixed yep. with Australian, but pretty much. In fact, I went. In fact, I was told on the same conversation that you need to do some look at your accent. And they said we have a student here, Mel. And I said, Yeah, I ride the bus with Mel. Yeah. And we go talk to him. And I said, uh, I, I said, uh, talk to him. Ask him what you should do because he's getting out. You know, he's an American. And so I went up to Mel and I said, So, you know, Betty Williams said that I should talk to you. What should I do about? my american accent and he said no i wouldn't fucking worry about it (laughs) right and i went okay but but i did worry about it i just took it i wanted to be here and he was off to la i think but we back to the stories that when i went when i was in like the first week they said oh you first years when you get a moment go in and observe the technical rehearsal the run through of the lights and all that stuff in the parade theater in the uh, nida theater they're doing, I think, the hostage, the third years. And I went in and sat there. And they were all in it, all the third years, Mel. And I went, who is that? Who is that? She is incredible. And it was Judy Davis. And didn't know anything about her. And I just went, I am in the right. Yes. I am in the right place if an actor like that comes out of this Institution. institution. And I, you could I, see that oh, she had a... from a, a moment she came on stage in that technical rehearsal, I went, that's one, what I want to be able to do. And I told her, I worked with her since, and I I told her that, and she oh, no, don't be silly, you know, whatever, but she's very nice, but amazing. So what was the quality that, if you could Hard describe, to describe it back it, Well, how to break it down, but what I saw was a person so in their element and in the moment, so 
there was no other place that she belonged in that stage. She was in that character. She was totally open, as you were saying, like earlier about spontaneity, being in the moment, to give and receive, no nerves, no nerves. I mean, you know, the acting profession, it's interesting that when you're young and you want it, you're starting out and you're trying to get a, a leg up and to go places, get more opportunities, you got to be, being an, a human, you want to playing a human, it's about just being relaxed. We humans are generally in conversation, relaxed. And yes. If you're new to a profession, how can you be relaxed if you're a little bit nervous mm. and you're unsure? That's a very difficult thing to to be. Let yourself be. Let yourself go and be relaxed. And she had that quality of if it and character and. You've got to be relaxed, but you've got to show. Show with energy. With, well, you've got to show with energy to a degree. Well, yeah, what but, the character is. But, but yes, although I think you, we should be careful about that's called indication, indicating things and showing. We don't need to. Things will, you know, the screen, the camera will pick you up. Your behavior. We don't have to push out. Yep. Uh huh. You know, and that's. So, what would be the difference, say, between you doing a? stage performers you're kind of pushing out a, a little film. bit yeah i guess that's what i was <laughs> you're kind of pushing out a little bit you've you got to. it that's what yeah. you're on to yeah david i mean it's like you know you are you are the stage is a wide shot you yeah. know this the screen is you blink your eye or you raise your left eyebrow it's the size of a car you know it's a you know mac truck on the screen so you just just be and it'll pick you up and ignore and just behave. But in stage, well, to, you have to have truth, and that is truth. But you also are playing a massive wide shot that is locked off. As Baz Luhrmann, who I've worked with lots of times, said, you know, it's locked off. It's, you know, a massive. We have to remember that you've got people in the gods, as we say, the gods. You've got to we still the say gods. the gods? Absolutely. Next. Lovely. The dress the circle. Guy. Some people say, but yes, we dress circle. The, yeah. the cheap seats. There are no cheap seats there anymore. No cheap seats. <laughs> hey, we can get back to Baz later, but you mentioned Mel Gibson before, and mm-hmm. David and I did have a little look at some of your work in Mad Max. Oh my God! <laughs> yeah. How was that experience? That was incredible. Stupid me. Like it was during the punk, post-punk days. Yeah. And I was in Sydney, and you know the share house, and we go into bands and stuff, and all the time. And I got this part, you know, the Defiant Victim. I had a bigger. You know what? I had a bigger role. George Miller gave me a bigger role, and then I got a call, and they said, "Oh, they cut your role. That role's gone." But oh. he's giving you this one, which is the defiant victim. I went, "Yeah, no, I'm doing it." You know. So they flew me to Broken Hill. That's all I knew. It was out in Broken Hill, and flew me. And I got off the plane, and I thought, you know, I drove into town because there was nothing to do that evening. You know, just chill out and just go into town and go to the pub. You know, go to these pubs, and I went in there and I went, "What a cool town." What a great town in the middle of nowhere. People have like mohawks and blue hair. And I, I seriously just thought, this, I want to, this is great. Why didn't I come here before? Yeah. Stupidly not realizing that everyone in the town is extras. You know? Yes. They were all extras. They were all extras. And the place was going off. That, wow. that there were party after party really? after party. Yes. You drove around to parties and parties. No and, discipline. No sense of, all right, actors better be no, in there was that on the set but no it was a really cut loose wild west brilliant time 
um, they tied me to the front of a, uh, the King Humongous's vehicle, and I had to sign a contract that said I agree to being tied to the front of a vehicle and driven through the outback above and beyond the legal speed limit. I had to sign that um, or something like that, but I did. And was they, it frightening? It, terrifying, but I didn't care. Move it was fun. Give them nothing. Blow it up. Um, it was terrifying and I could have gone at any minute sure but I could have the thing could have rolled but did I care no, no. it's crazy how old were you that, that was your first oh, year I was adult, 23 you know? or 24 maybe did Mel look after you but to a degree I saw him but he was really busy but uh, yeah busy. Did, yeah he was great he was he was terrific Really, really good. One of the other great characters you talked about, that the, the sense of being involved in, in rock and roll and share house uh, in Sydney, and I wanted to ask you about a, a mutual friend, our dear departed mate, Paul Hester. Mm. So tell me about y- your time with Hesse and also through Mark Little. Yes, yes. There's an incredible I met I met Paul through Mark's dear wife, Kath, Kath. Farr. Uh, I used to come to, when I was living in Sydney, um, I'd go to Melbourne and stay with Martin Calf. And um, was learning to play the guitar and wanted to be in band or some, you know, as everybody did. And and I met Paul through Calf, old friends. And we just, I don't know, same size, same personality, same whatever. Um, We just matched up really well and... So, you know, Paul said, I'll be in your band, you know, if you want, you're going to make one. And so we made a band called Love Party and Paul was the drummer and other things. He played whatever. And it was just a riot. And we just had fun, did gigs. Probably, I think we were, I guess, short-lived in a way, but did maybe, I don't know, 30 gigs. Our our finest thing, I think, at the end was a thing that uh, called Dance to the Rhythm of Christ that was quite a hit up in Queensland on is it two Z triple yeah, Z uh, four double triple Z, Z. maybe yep. yep and um it actually exists on YouTube if you look Dance of the Rhythm really? of Christ that was Love Party we produced that and it was all this oh, you know hammer yeah. my head hammer my head hammer my head and ha- uh, you know Bang, 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 nail in my hand, and up goes Jesus. You know, dance to the rhythm of Christ. Hammer in my head, I got a hammer in my head, hammer in my head, hammer in my head, hammer in my head, I got a hammer in my head, hammer in my head, hammer in my head, hammer in my head, I got a hammer in my head, hammer in my head, hammer in my head, hammer in my head, I got a hammer in my head. Well, from from that, you know, incredible kind of punky type music, then you ended up at Opera Australia. Oh, unbelievable! So that's a yeah. that's a leap. 
I had my moment at Opera Australia just, you know, it started in 1993. Uh, Baz said, will you, Baz said, would you, have you ever played Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream? I've always seen you as Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream. I said, no. And he said, I'm sending you, I'm doing the opera, Benjamin Britten's. I'm going to send you, I was in Melbourne at the time working as Greg Brady and the real live Brady Bunch. He said, I'm going to send you this, um, I'm going to send you this thing and listen to it. And it was beautiful and strange music. And I went, yeah, no, I'll be in that. And That being Benjamin Britten's. Benjamin Britten's, yeah. It, it, yeah, Benjamin Britten's Midsummer Night's Dream. And they said it in the British Raj and they, and uh, in India. And I, I bit a cultural appropriation, I suppose. But I played it as Pac. I was told that I'm going to be dressed in blue and have, covered head to toe in blue and very acrobatic kind of role. I brought my not great acrobatic prowess to oh, you intervene so but I jumped physical. around it was no, fun amazing and rolled and, dead and leaped and stuff and I did remember thinking that and did this from 93 to oh 2010 maybe we just kept bringing it back oh really it was very popular it took to Edinburgh and it was wonderful but I just remember those moments when you're happiest in your creativity or whatever. That was one of those moments I was sitting backstage thinking I'm in an opera I cannot believe that <laughs> Like, I will never be in an opera again, probably, unless maybe I could play that man, uh, Don Quixote or whatever that one that Helton did. I forgot. But I just went, oh. That was a ballet. Was it a ballet? <laughs> <laughs> but you could do that as well. Yeah. There is a donkey shot. <laughs> so, but I remember sitting there dressed from head to toe in makeup and costume, having just come off from an audience, you know, jumping around going and smelling the incense that Baz and CM put on stage, hearing the beautiful music, surrounded by orchestra, huge crowd going, I'm just in heaven. This is all I want to do is be in this moment for the rest of my life, just being so totally consumed by... <laughs> do you think the, that your personality is also suited to opera in a way because you like that expansive expression? And that helped. Yes, you know, but you know, David, the, the thing was, it was like, you know, the puck, puck in that, in there, has to kind of sing to, to bring people. I'm here, you know, but and Britain's written it, so I've got to come hither. I'm here, you know, and do that. So I actually went. I actually have to sing in an opera. I mean, it's like I'm not going to broadcast that to people, but I'm actually going to have to sing in an opera at the opera in house. an operatic style. Well, yes, and I not much of a singer so i just thought that was a was nice a, opportunity was a brilliant portrayal to, do, to, to have to do that and i must say it was inspired casting by baz to have you in it no it was fantastic it was it was a great moment and yeah. you really kind of was, yeah you were you yeah. were almost like well you are puck is the conduit to to the audience right yes and you exactly. were the bridge you made the bridge that's right he, and it was a time when opera was doing very well with the general public yeah and baz was at the and, Head of that vanguard, helping yeah. opera, and, and Baz, how he always loves to have Lorman loves to have an MC yes. in his shows, and he and Puck was the MC yep. in his way. We always have to have that connection, that that MC with an audience. So I played my Basil MC role. In if we shadows have offended. slumbered here while these visions did appear. Gentles, do not reprehend. If you pardon, we will mend. Else the puck 
had a relationship with Baz with uh, Strictly Ball, right? I did, yeah. They, uh, Sydney Theatre Company in 1988, because of the bicentennial, um, put together a six-month young company, and they tendered out, and um, Baz got it as a director to do three shows. They just went, here's a room, here's a stage, um, get some actors, seven or eight or nine actors, and have a company. And Baz said, yeah, we're going to call it six years old. But we're going to call it six years old, and you're going to get together. And on the first day, Baz said, okay, this is what we're going to do. It's up to us. Whatever we want to do, we have a theater and stuff. We're going to have a collective, and we're going to do it. And we're going to do Strictly Ballroom, which I don't know if you guys know, he said, but it, we did a 14-minute performance of this Strictly Ballroom in Europe. At NIDA. At NIDA. And we're going to extend it to maybe an hour, and we're going to take it up to the Expo in Brisbane. World right. Expo. And so we developed turned it, it, developed it, and took it up there. That was fun. And wrote. Uh, we all wrote on it yeah. a little bit. But when you saw the movie of mm-hmm. Strictly Ballroom, did mm-hmm. you think, well, hang on, that was I, I wrote that line. Yes, I did. I did. I did. <laughs> How was that? That was a buzz. That was a buzz. And I remember, I wrote that line. I wrote that line. And it made it to the musical that I was then in. And um, I went, yeah, no, that was a buzz. That was a buzz. Because it got a laugh. And I went, that's my laugh. That's my, you know, you Perfect. just take pleasure in that. And you go, but these kind of things inspire you to go, well, if I can do it, then maybe I can write something else. Yeah. You know? or, or what about opening night where Robin Archer and Mikhail Brishnikov were in the audience. That was incredible. How did that come about? Well, um, two friends who were dancers in Sydney when I was living, Matthew Bergen and Tobin Saunders, wanted to write a show about Helpman for the Sydney Gay Mardi Gras Festival where you could just do a bit of theatre. And I went, yeah, yeah, I'll write that. And they said, would you write this for us? We'll do it as a collective you know, will you write it for us? And I went, yeah, but who are we going to get to play Helpman? And we didn't know. And I, and then I drew the nostrils on and I just looked in the mirror and I went, oh, well, he's outrageous. I mean, I'm going to do him as a grotesque, you know, so it's not just biographical. We're going to do something that's kind of outrageous because it was gay Mardi Gras, it was camp and it was drag queens. and So I drew him on and I just went, oh no, I can do that anyway. um, So I played Helpman and we, Played one night, we probably get like nine people, ten people, eleven people if we're lucky, in the Gay Mardi Gras f- Festival at the Performance Space back in the 90s. And one night before I went out there, and I'm I'm a ballet, and you know, I'm not a ballet dancer. I, I'm physical, but I'm not a ballet dancer. And and I went, oh, you know, somebody said, oh, Barishnikov's in the audience tonight. <laughs> And before I went, the ge- before I'm playing the show? a ballet dance. Yes, yes, right before I went on. Oh they went, Barishnikov's in the audience. And I went, are you serious? I'm actually playing a ballet dancer. <laughs> it's like singing opera on the well, stage of an like, opera. Well, it would be like singing me, singing, you know, there's 10 people in the audience and Pavarotti's one of them. Right. And how big's the room? Because well, can, it was a performance space, not him? huge, like 
the Gershwin room? Yeah. Yes. 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 I made sure I darted and I per. I opened up the curtains and looked, and there was Barishnikov oh, with some of his dancers, because it was the White Oak Project or whatever right. they were called, and they were in Sydney at the time. And then I went, oh, and next to him is Robin Archer, or like near him was Robin, not yeah. together, but it was Robin Archer and Mikhail Barishnikov. And I went, and like seven or eight other people in the audience scattered around. And so we did this sort of, this camp, it was called Bobby's Fluffy Trip, we called it then. Yeah. It was a three-person thing that... You know, it had holes in it, but it was yeah. fun. It had fun moments in it. And very helpman and very ballet and the cruelty and the torture of the ballet. And, yes. you know, life starts at 15 and it ends at 25, <laughs> you know, and all that. You know, and you're, you, all this stuff, all these jokes, these ballet jokes that I... And was there my, a little edge to your performance that night? Yeah. Well, the edge was <laughs> like... When there the isn't. edge was... <laughs> the edge was, I better get my second position right, my first position right, because I'm making fun of the ballet as Helpman. These people from White Oak, including Brishnikov, are going to see that. Mm, and yeah. so, yes, it gave me an edge, and I went, I'm on my best behavior now. But anyway, I just kept hearing Brishnikov laugh. Oh, and I remember seeing at one point Robin Archer, she laughed too, but I saw her turn around... I remember clearly she turned around as if to go I love that Brishnikov is laughing at this like right. as well so and then I got a call the next day saying um, what are you going to do with your helpman character after this is over this little play and I said I don't know and she said well if you develop it into a one man show I'm artistic director of the Telstra Adelaide Festival Brilliant. in two years and if you can develop it and send it to me I will put it on at the festival and like the proper festival and so I went right and so I went to the guys and came up with a deal and I said I'm going to turn this into a solo show is that all right they said yes so I just turned it into a solo show and ended up brilliant getting it everywhere and brilliant really would have you come up with him I wouldn't have come up with him no. But and yet it was, I was just presented so right with for him. you. I mean, you yeah, just well, it worked out. To... Huge character, huge guy, uh, love of theater, yeah. uh, amazing character. And then I found that, uh, you know, I had this healthy distrust and dislike of the grand self-appointed guru of theater. When you're younger, you're thinking, what is that about? You know, I'm just, the, we're all just the same. We're all just, we're actors and we want to be. And yet you, well, there, there are people up, up, upstairs, these actors that um, are grandiose and as if to say, you could never, you know, you'll never be what I am. Helpman was not like that, but I thought he was at first. So I, mm. you know, I learned through researching him that it was, he was quite the opposite. In what respect? So um, how... Well, he was very welcoming. I mean, he he was did not accept mediocrity, but he was no. always about passing the baton or the baton to people. And I think that um, was also because he he seemed to have so many. Um, he was so diverse in what he did as well. I mean, he he was. liked to act, not just be a ballet dancer. No, so that's perhaps right. that's why uh, yeah, that's he right. did see beyond his own, you know, small discipline. I mean, you think about that, you know, Helpman just, not to, I could talk about him for a long time, but the, 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 growing up in a sheep station in South Australia, near Mount Gambier, growing up and going, I want to be a ballet dancer. They would have chucked you to the sharks, yeah. and indeed they wanted to, you know. And they went, and well, the grandmother and the mother went, we're going to make this happen. 
<laughs> you know, I'm going, you went from there to be the, to play the balletic leads during the war in yeah. World War II. You actually went from there to there and you changed your accent and you became something, another person. And Speaking of great Australian characters, there's someone else I wanted to ask you about, Patrick White. Oh, right. He, he, <laughs> he requested that you be in a production he did. Ham funeral. He did. How did that come about? Well, Patrick was around Nimrod Theatre a lot, and um, I heard of. I'd seen plays that he'd done. I'd never met him and knew his reputation, and really hadn't re- read his books. Hadn't read? No. I well, I mean, I'm a reader. Back then, I was a reader, but I didn't choose Patrick Wright's books. To read yeah. other things, Stephen King's, and all that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's forward. just me in twenties and stuff. And um, then I heard they were Sydney Theatre Company were going to mount a big production of Ham Funeral, his first play. They were going to redo it and bring it up with Neil Armfield, and was going to direct it. And it was going to be a big celebration. And then I got a call from Neil that said, uh, he said, um, Patrick White's requested you to play the kind of semi-autobiographical role of the young man. And I went, wow, okay, great. And so we did, and I performed it, and it was incredible working with Patrick. He was there in the rehearsal room. Was and he? You knew that he loved the acting, because when maybe Robin Nevin was in it with Maggie Kirkpatrick, uh, Pam Rabe in that as well. Pamela Rabe was in it. Yes, I met Pamela there. She was the anima. Fantastic. Um, and um, so when we were short of an actor who, you know, maybe had to go away for the day to do something or other, he'd be the first one. Oh, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> and really? He'd just, yeah, he'd just read from his chair, you know. And he'd read the lines and shout them out. He was a. But he loved doing that. Yeah, he loved it. Had you met him? No, no. No, I hadn't met him. No, I hadn't. Did you ever attend any of those uh, famous parties at the I house? never went to the parties. No, my centennial my, park. No, it was mostly all to do with fa- Ham Funeral, and he was very supportive. And he, and he, I got a review that was like from some stuffy old reviewers saying that there was something qualities of my American accent coming through and right. you know and it wasn't you know what's that about in this play and and then the phone rang and I picked it up hello and I said yeah hello and he said this is Patrick oh you must be upset over that review I know I was and I said yeah well I was a little bit and he said don't let it worry you and he even wrote in and he said I he wrote into the paper, which got printed, and said, I've designed this to be, this character to be from anywhere. Wow. Lots of places. In fact, you say it in the opening. You say, I could be from, whatever it is, Birmingham, London, New York, or whatever. I could be from anywhere. And yet that reviewer just missed the point, you know. And he said, I'm very happy with your performance. And he gave me a book... Um, he gave me a book at the closing of, of the show of Bob Dylan lyrics really? and wrote in it, which is wonderful. I thought, what a beautiful gift. You know, I look at it all the time. And, um, and then I got, a, I got a pair of his shoes that were passed on to me when he passed away, these nice Italian shoes that my good friend, Kerry Walker, who was a good friend of um, Patrick's, passed on to me, and I wore them a lot. And I went, 
these shoes, these beautiful shoes, even though they were two sizes too long, too big, I was going to wear them. And I wore them when I wrote my play, Lyrebird. I just thought, well, I'm going to just be imbued. Yeah, I'm going to be a writer. Channel. So That's good. great. But then I look at them now and went, oh, I wore them down a bit. I think they look <laughs> yeah. a little bit better new like they were. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great to have the playwright? kind of review to review like that every time we got a bad Amazing. Yeah. Never had it. How ever. brilliant. Yeah. Yes. Wonderful. Hello, Tyler. <laughs> it was just this beautiful voice. I'm living in the seventies. Well, I got a little quote that I wanted to throw at Tyler. The influential performers of Coppin's early days were the Skyhooks and the Menagerie of the Brave and Tragic on TV's Pot of Gold talent show. Yes. Good. Well, I'm not sure where that comes that from. Means. I don't know where that comes from, but it nails it. I just go, Skyhooks, yes, when I came here. Yeah. And go, you know, I first came here, knew nothing about Australia other than it was far away. Wanted to go there, had kangaroos, and it looked brilliant. Um, and seeing the skyhooks on the TV, seeing skyhooks on TV, going, love them. Yeah. And this is marvelous. And um, what was the other one? Was the pot of gold? Pot of gold. Oh, pot of gold. Of course, that turned that on and went, oh, <laughs> cruel but wonderful. <laughs> Just cruel but wonderful. Um, was it Bernard good, King? B- good, yes, yeah. Bernard King. And, you know, what is it? You know, it's you go on it knowing that you might get savaged. Yeah. I'm not at all sure that the material's appropriate for two dear little girls, but I, I couldn't understand the lyric of the song, so it probably doesn't matter very much. Will you promise me that you won't listen to your friends when they say you're wonderful? The one way to improve as a promising entertainer is to never believe your family or your friends because they'll say you're wonderful and they're lying. So we're all into it, but we're hoping for a bit of savagery. Perhaps if you were to join a huge chorus, 20 to 30,000 in the chorus would be... Singing-wise, you're not exactly the most enchanting experience I've had, but dance-wise, you're disastrous. What about we finish off with our three questions? The first question, what do you think has been the greatest risk you've taken either in life or artistically and what was the outcome? And would you do it again? Well, my greatest risk was to say goodbye to America. Yep. Hello, Australia. I am choosing to live here. Would I take it again? Yeah, but I might do it in different ways. What about on a micro level, maybe in terms of performance, on stage even, the great risks. Does anything jump out at you? Mm. Well, my solo show, Lyrebird, was a big risk going, can I play someone that's in Australia and do it by myself for 90 minutes at a stretch, this huge character, and make myself actually feel like I'm helping for 90 minutes in front of people, and he's not in my world dna Um, so there's there's that um i can't think offhand risks no all fun risks of you know playing greg brady in the real life brady bunch was my playing hamlet (laughs) you know some people play hamlet the actors go you know hamlet of gender to me greg brady was you know 
mocks somewhat the funny Hamlet of his generation. Because you know? you'd grown up. Yeah, I didn't like the Brady Bunch, but we watched it going, oh, this is so tragic. Look at it. And then to play him with, you know, crayoned on, crayoned eyebrows to make them really big and a top, you know, an afro and just making him a little bit like turn Brady into where he's, you look at him and you go, you, you got some issues. Yeah. <laughs> the most accomplished performer you've been involved with. The most the, accomplished oh, performer yeah, I've ever been involved yeah. with Steve Martin. There you go. Without a question, Steve Martin. Tell us. Well, I was in Melbourne and I was asked to be in a workshop for the first play that Steve Martin uh, wrote. And he was here with his wife at the time when she was doing a movie. Yep. And I got cast in this thing. And I thought, oh, Steve might just pop in. But he was there and he worked side by side with us in that theater, feeding us lines, rewriting our lines, giving us commas where commas didn't exist, taking out commas where they shouldn't be. He was an exact comedy science. Now, I've always been an admirer of him. Look, I love him as an actor in films, but it's not that. It's the his comedy, his writing, and his stand-up comedy, his one-liners, his, his brain that creates his work. And to work with him inspired me forever just to go that and, and in fact he said to me one time which was wonderful i i said do we need to do this blah 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 here you know we're on page 77 and it looks a little bit like this line should go here and someone said oh oh you know why are you asking that and steve just said no tyler is very analytical and this is a great thing and i just went you know and that feeds me and i just of went course. you know it's steve martin telling me that you know and great so that's good Picasso, Picasso at Picasso the Picasso the Le Gilles. Yes, with Shane Bourne. Yes, with Shane Bourne. Great experience. Um, yeah, it was a Shane. great experience, and we did it, and it uh, did it at Belvoir Street, and yeah. we did it all around. We did it at Belvoir Street, and it just packed him in. We were getting like blowtorch laughs, you know, those things where we played into three quarters, and you know, you'd say a line, and the people on the side of you in the bank, the audience on the side of you, would laugh so hard you could feel it. Yeah. That's, you know, that was closest I'll ever get to stand-up comedy. I'm not that brave. Because of Steve Martin's writing. Writing. But he was, who was directing? Neil Armfield. Okay, so they worked together closely, Uh, Steve and Neil. Steve and Neil and us, yeah. Deborah Kennedy, Shane Bourne, uh, Clifford Allen. My wife, Jane Borghese, eventually was in the um, production that we took around. But the workshop was originally Richard Roxburgh was in the workshop wow what a cast yeah it was fun and then we we performed it at the malt house too we read it at the malt house yes um two nights um and he was great to work with he was wonderful to work with and steve sat up the back he didn't sit in the audience he sat up the back in the dark he stood up and stood up the back in the dark you could see him pacing just listen to the reaction and he said and i learned another thing with comedy with good comic writing just good lines you know you're setting up your you're listening and setting. You're always look at your setup, who you're setting up the line for, yep. you know, who you're setting up and stuff. But he just went, he said, uh, yeah, he said, I really appreciate that you guys aren't in this workshop. I just want to see what happens. And you're not screwing with it. You're not taking a line and making it a little funny or you're not, you know, yeah. a lot of comedians sort of just give it a little bit of a razzmatazz a little tone and he said i don't want that i just want you to say the words and mean them with truth and we'll see if it flies and every single freaking one flew if you did that and i learned a lot just going it's about truth it's about commitment and truth and clarity and etc so the actual 
difference between comedy and drama? There's not a lot. No, there's not a lot. It's all based in truth. Yeah, well, of course, it has to be. Absolutely. We may well have covered this as well, but your earliest memory of performance, whether it be your own or seeing someone, and, you know, the first time you really connected as either an audience member or you... Well, two. One was that I I talked about, which was being on that chair doing hot and cold and the day changes and the autumn comes and the breeze comes and feeling that and doing that. And I'm going, okay, well, looking at that now, going back, and I'm going, it's, you're trying to manufacture kind of, what I try to do always is get to the point, which is impossible, of insanity where wouldn't it be great if I could actually be that character to the point where I'm thinking the thoughts of the character? And of course, this is impossible, but that's always the goal yeah. to actually be character acting, be that person. Yep. So that feeling of being in the chair, that was the first one. And then I remember going to the puppeteer, seeing a puppet show with my mom. Um, and they were so supportive of my acting and used to take me to places and, this and show me this. And she took me to the puppeteer and he did well we didn't see him we just saw the puppets and they were all different you know characters or some were exuberant some were shy some were really exuberant extroverted characters and stuff and then he's going to take question and answers you know after the show the puppeteer is going to come out and i remember my mom turned to me and she goes you watch i'll bet he's going to be really shy and I went, I was intrigued with that. And he came out and he was like the shyest man. And I went, are you serious? Like you can be a shy person. You don't have to be an extrovert to be a performer. You can actually be an introvert. You can actually be shy. You can be quiet, you know. I'm not, you know, I, I can be, I can act extroverted and have fun. But you going, you can be anything, you know. And, and it was true. She got, nailed it, you know. Here was this really quiet guy that was a little bit like, didn't want to answer the questions. It didn't felt a bit nervous, but get him behind that mask. Yeah. How old were you when you had that experience with the puppeteer and where were you? Oh, I think I was maybe 11, probably 12, and I was in Sacramento, California at a place called Fairytale Town. Shall we finish with a little reading? Yeah, but it's totally, totally off the beaten track. That's good. That doesn't matter. It's Sonnet 30, Shakespeare's Sonnet 30. When to the sessions of sweet, silent thought I summon up remembrance of things past I sigh the lack of many a thing I sought And with old woes new wail my dear time's waste Then can I drown an eye unused to flow For precious friends hidden death's stateless night and weep afresh love's long-since-cancelled woe, And moan the expense of many a vanished sight. Then can I grieve at grievances forgone, And heavily, from woe to woe, Tell o'er the sad account of forbemoaned moan, Which I knew pays if not paid before. But if the while I think on thee, dear friend. All losses are restored and sorrows end. Tyler Coppen. That was extraordinary, Tyler. Thank, Thank you. you.
It's about being in love, isn't it? I guess. You're welcome. I'm so glad oh, to have been so on your podcast, you. Brian, yeah. David. Yeah. Really nice. Wonderful. Thanks for coming. Thank you.